welcome to episode five of the Bubble Boys. I'm Devin Olson, joined by LP Spaulding. We're here on episode five. Uh, we tried to do episode five Monday night. We had about an hour and 15 minutes of a episode recorded. Everything went smooth. We had some juicy takes, and then we went to save the file, and a minute and 30 seconds of it saved. So that's never a good thing, but hopefully sitting here on a Friday morning, maybe we can get a little bit better luck with audio recording. But I also probably shouldn't have been using a free audio recorder from the Microsoft store. I guess that was probably my first issue. You got to spend money to make money, Deb. You can't be using all the cheap stuff. And I do not find it any coincidence that two of my spiciest takes I've ever said out loud in my life, and then the episode did upload. I mean, first one was about Tyler Hero, and this one, I'll get into my Gobert stuff, but I, I, that's not a coincidence to me. I'm just, I have too many hot takes. I'm just frying the system up there. Yeah, I guess it's whenever you mentioned, uh, I think that was episode like three or four that we also had a scratch because of it. And you said something like Tyler Hero at, over Giannis at end of game situations. And the computer is just like, uh, nope, that's not happening. And yeah, moved on can't, from can't that. Can't that to the world. Yeah, can't exactly. That to the world. Well, uh, basically on this episode, we probably just going to run through our NBA draft recap again. And maybe get into a little bit of free agency signings and what we think about different things. But starting off with the Timberwolves, because once again, we're based in Minnesota. What did you think about their draft? I guess maybe just to recap first, they took Anthony Edwards at one, traded 17 for Ricky Rubio, and then ended up also with two more draft picks of Leandro Balmaro and Jaden McDaniels. So what did you think of their night last Wednesday? I think it's exactly what the Wolves fans wanted, and I know it's what I wanted, but not the exact way we thought it would happen. I was convinced that we were going to move down from one to three and get Edwards there, but um, seems like Rosas was hell-bent on taking Edwards, you know, giving a little confidence boost, having him be the first pick. But it seems like he was the one they really wanted out of that trio of Edwards, Wiseman, and Ball. But that move down from 17 is one of my favorite things that Wolves have done in the draft in a long time. I I love the idea of us, first off, getting a secondary ball handling playmaker. Ricky, you know, you're the big Ricky Rubio guy on this podcast. And then taking two just big swings. You already got your one first-round pick. And when we went through our process, I wasn't necessarily super high on either Andrew Bomaro or Jade McDaniels. But those because if I left the draft with just those guys – there's a lot of risk that goes into either of those guys. McDaniels doesn't quite have his frame right, but he has a lot of ball handling and playmaking ability that you like to see. Just to see if he can get his body right so he can play that power forward position maybe stretch the floor. And then Bomaro is a guy that averaged like four points a game. I mean, he's really, really young. And he didn't necessarily even get a ton of playing time when he was playing over in Europe. So... Getting a drafted stash guy in Bulmaro and then getting a young, young, high upside prospect in Daniels exactly what you want to do after you have your kind of superstar that you took at one overall. So I love what the Wolves did in this draft. Yeah, I agree. I was going back to our last podcast. I was pretty hell-bent on the Timberwolves taking the mellow ball at one. But after thinking about it, and I still think the mellow ball is going to end up being the better player, and I still think that should have been the pick at one. But looking back at what Rosas and his front office group are trying to do, the, the quote-unquote stars on the team are D'Angelo Russell and Carl Anthony Towns. And everything that they've been doing since they got here has been catered to Cat. And now with D'Angelo Russell coming on board, I'm guessing it'll also be catered to D'Angelo Russell. And I think we saw that for the first time on draft night, where Edwards fits more seamlessly than LaMelo Ball or James Wiseman would have with the with D'Lo and Cat because obviously LaMelo Ball, as we said, would need the ball in his hands. He needs space and he needs opportunity to create for himself. And if you're playing him on the ball, that's moving D'Angelo Russell off the ball. And after you just traded for D'Angelo Russell, how would he feel of being, I, I don't want to say second fiddle because LaMelo Ball would still be a rookie, but you have to hand the keys to LaMelo Ball. And I think everyone came to that notion and so how would D'Angelo Russell feel of maybe going playing more off the ball? And again, you're paying D'Angelo Russell a max contract and you never want to have money as the reason why, for example, you know, when Jeff Teague was here and some people thought he could have been coming off the bench, everyone's like, well, he's making $18 million or whatever. We can't bring him off the bench. Like money should never be a reason for that, but we are paying D'Angelo Russell a max contract. So 
you don't necessarily want him just to become a spot up shooter, I guess, on our offense, especially when we don't really know what him and Cat can do together. So I guess that was the first thought of why I figured we would probably take Anthony Edwards just to keep those two guys happy. Now, I do think LaMelo Ball would have made Carl Anthony Towns a better player just because of his playmaking abilities, which gave me a little, I guess I'll call it hope because I was hoping we would take LaMelo Ball, but a little bit of a an opportunity where Rosas might have thought, okay, let's take LaMelo Ball because he makes our best best player better. But after we took Anthony Edwards, I mean, I'm like one of the biggest Ricky Rubio fans in the entire world. He's what got me into watching the Timberwolves and just watching the NBA in general. So obviously once that happened, I was a little more settled and I guess liked Anthony Edwards pick a lot more. And I'm not saying Anthony Edwards is going to be a bad player. I think he has a lot of tools. He just has a lot of work to do. And the biggest question is, will he put in that work? And I think getting Ricky Rubio also in the draft kind of offset some of my worries about not getting LaMelo Ball because now we're still getting that playmaking ability that Ball would have bring, would have bring just in a different manner. And I guess I had my little Ricky Rubio rant on the Monday podcast that didn't save. So I guess I can go off on the little Ricky Rubio tangent again, but basically I don't understand. Now a lot of Timberwolves fans like the Ricky Rubio trade, but there are some people that are like, yo, what the heck are we doing here? You know, this guy was our point guard for how many years you saw what our team was like. He can't shoot. He can't do this. He doesn't win games. And I think that's being very short sighted because in my mind, the Ricky Rubio trade is a short term win with he's going to help you win games this season. And it's got a long term vision in mind of helping try to acquire a third star down the road. And if you know anything about Gerson Rosas and his group, that's their entire goal. Eventually, they want to get to that third star. And I, I think people are short sighting the Ricky Rubio move as okay, this guy has two years left on his contract. He's going to be here for those two years at $17 million. And then he's going to either re-sign for a lower number or walk. And I don't think that's the case. As much as I love Ricky Rubio, I would put it at a greater than 50% chance that he's not here at this time next season, which you know hurts me to say, but that's just how Rosas operates. In a way, he traded James Johnson's contract and just pushed it back a year. Once he realized that Ben Simmons, Bradley Beal, Devin Booker, those type of names weren't going to be available this offseason. He thought, okay, they're not going to be available this offseason. It's pretty uncommon to see a high-level star traded at the trade deadline. So by the time, if, if there's a chance any of them are available next summer, we're going to need the money to line up and to be able to go and make a move for those guys. And James Johnson at that time would have been an expired. He would have been expired. He would have been a free agent. So his salary wouldn't have came into the picture anymore. So with Rubio with two years left on his deal, now his salary would come into the picture next offseason. And then you can match up, you know, any couple guys, Rubio and most likely probably something like Edwards and picks for one of those stars. Or we just signed Malik Beasley to a big deal. You can match up Beasley and Edwards and picks to try and go with the deal. You're putting yourself in the picture for the stars because before the deal, if a star became available next summer, you would have had to get really creative to try to make the money work because after Towns and Russell, the guys on our, on our payroll that would have been making the most money to theoretically use in the trade would have been Edwards and Culver. And you would have had to stash like five or six of those guys just to get in the picture salary wise, just to put yourself even at the table. And with this, you can offer the opportunity of Rubio next summer will be an expiring contract. So maybe a team can get some salary flexibility from that, get a young player in Edwards, and then, you know, the bucket of picks that you always see go out for a star. But in terms of a long, like, I don't think there's a downside of this trade because either way, he's going to help us win this year, which I'll get into in a second. And if he, if everything goes wrong and nothing works out this year with him and D'Lo playing together or with Rubio coming off the bench or whatever it is, he's going to be traded next summer in a move that'll now be like a new James Johnson contract. So that's what I don't understand when people say they don't like the deal and maybe they're too ambitious in thinking that they were going to get some star level player this summer, not summer, I guess, because of now Thanksgiving time, but this off season and they don't realize 
Like that was never plausible. And hanging on to that James Johnson Johnson contract, one argument I've heard is, okay, if you can't get us a, a star, why don't you wait to the trade deadline to see if someone comes available? Well, I think if you can push that James Johnson contract back a year in theory, which is basically what they did, why not guarantee you can do that? Like this offseason, guarantee you can do that. You don't know what the situation is going to be at the trade deadline. You don't know what kind of offers are going to be out there. So if you push it back to then, you risk losing out on that contract for nothing. And that's not what you want to do. And that's not what Rosas and his group are going to do. Now on the court, I still don't see the argument. And again, I'm going to try to put the emotional side aside from this because once again, I'm probably one of the biggest Ricky Rubio fans in the entire world. But if you look at what he's done, we'll say the last three years, his two seasons in Utah and his one with Phoenix last year, he's made every single team better when he's been on the floor. In total, in his nine seasons he's been in the NBA, his on-off numbers, so points per 100 possessions, it's been a positive difference when he's been on the court every season except his second year, which is when he played 57 games coming off of his ACL injury. And in those nine seasons, he's been above the 80th percentile in on-off difference in six seasons. And that's relative to all players, not just point guards. So everyone in the NBA, in four years, he's been above the 90th percentile. So if you just sit back and think about those numbers and like, you realize, yes, maybe he's not the best shooter. Now, he did shoot 36% from three last year at Phoenix and about 41% on catch and shoot. But there's more to Ricky Rubio and there's more to basketball than just shooting. Now, does he have to replicate or would it be nice for him to replicate those percentages for the Wolves this year? I mean, absolutely, because he's going to be playing some off ball when he's on the court with D'Angelo Russell. And a big reason with the trade is Gerson Rosas always talks about how he wants high-level playmakers on the court at all times. And now you can do that. Theoretically, without injuries, you're going to have Rubio or D'Angelo Russell on the court for all 48 minutes of the game. I think that's a big upside that the Wolves have lacked in the past, where you even saw it last season a little bit when Russell came off the floor. And I mean, Jordan McLaughlin had a nice year, but he's not a high-level playmaker in any terms of the definition. But now with Rubio and Russell, you can not only play those two together. Russell played some off ball in Brooklyn two seasons. I guess it was only a season back now because he was with Golden State just last year. But he's played some off the ball, and Rubio has gotten a lot better off the ball in Utah and Phoenix. And a couple of stats that jumped out to me, I guess, was in Utah when Rubio was on the floor with Donovan Mitchell. In his first season, he was a plus 8.9 with Mitchell on the floor which is the 93rd percentile. And his second season, he was a plus 8.2, which was the 92nd percentile. So he knows how to play with these young, I guess you can call them stars, these young players that, now D'Angelo Russell isn't on the level of Donovan Mitchell or Devin Booker, but he's what closely relates to those guys on our team because you know Donovan Mitchell and Devin Booker will have the ball in their hands and they'll play off the ball. And D'Angelo Russell can do both of those things too. And with Phoenix, Rubio and Booker on the floor together were plus 6.3 points per 100 possessions, which was the 86th percentile. And then Booker, when Rubio was off the floor, just Booker on the floor, he was, the Suns were minus 6.3 points per 100 possessions, which was the 21st percentile. So just every way I've tried to find a way to not like the trade, but at the end of the day, we moved back from 17, got we still got two first round picks out of that and we got Ricky Rubio. So I keep describing the trade to everyone as a short-term win with a long-term vision in mind because he's going to help us on the floor this year. He's going to help Cat. Cat loved playing with Ricky Rubio. I mean, if you go back to Carl uh, Anthony Towns' rookie year with Ricky Rubio and Towns on the floor together, and I mean, that was a brutal team. That Cat's rookie year was not, a, we weren't a good team. But with Rubio and Cat on the floor together, we were a plus 1.7, which was the 66th percentile. And then with Cat on the floor without Rubio, the Wolves were minus 16 points, points per 100 possessions, which was the fourth percentile in the entire NBA, which is just re, like ridiculously bad. So Rubio, he's going to be an on-ball defender. He's going to take some of the pressure off of D'Lo on defense when they play together. And he's going to play make on offense. So I don't really see the downside 
of the deal. And I think people that want to view it as a downside just keep going back to the shooting. He can't shoot. We're supposed to play five out. We're supposed to have all these sharpshooters around us. And those same people will be interested in Josh Akogi and Jarrett Culver. And I'm like, Ricky Rubio was a better shooter than both of those guys last year. So why are you going to sing their praises on defense and what they do to help the team, their hustle, Josh Akogi's hustle, what he does defensively, and then say, I don't like Ricky Rubio. He can't shoot. Josh Akogi can't shoot either. Like, newsflash, he can't shoot. Jarrett Culver can't shoot. Ricky Rubio's a better shooter than both of those guys. And Ricky Rubio is, I'm not going to say just as good or better defender as Josh Akogi because Akogi's really good on the ball. But Rubio's going to be, he's going to get the best guard assignment every single night towards the end of the game because he might come off the bench to start. But at the end of the game, Ricky Rubio is going to be guarding the Steph Curry's and the Damian Lillard's. And I think it's a short term. It, I think it's short sighted if, if people don't like this trade, because then again, as you said, the two home run swings with Balmaro and McDaniels. So you're getting two home run swings and Ricky Rubio out of the 17th pick. I don't. Yeah. And the best thing for me too is this contract is a contract that's not going to depreciate value. We've seen it all over the NBA. The most recent one you've heard is Miles Turner, right? So the reason that Gordon Hayward wasn't traded to the Indiana Pacers was because Boston wanted nothing to do with Miles Turner's contract. And Miles Turner is only at $14 million. And that was only signed a year ago. It happens all the time at the NBA where players sign these big contracts and they just become toxic. I know we've talked about Wiggins. Extent. Wiggins is exactly like that. With Rubio at 17, it's a number that teams are going to be comfortable with, and he's not going to lose value in a trade. He is somebody, unlike James Johnson, who you can throw into a trade, and teams are going to enjoy it. They like him as an asset. He does help teams. As Timberwolves fans, we should know, we learned this experience, Jeff T experience, that having three to five percentage points behind the three-point line better doesn't make the team better if you're worse in every other facet of the game, and that's what the Jeff T experience showed. So. I mean, look at the playoffs even this year. Rajon Rondo had a hell of a playoffs. He's not a great shooter by any great shakes. So you're looking at the NBA right now. We have all these young players. The best thing I like that we got is, A, a contract that's good, that's going to keep value, something we can use to move for a star. And, B, you're looking at the Wolves' guard and wing rotation right now. This is probably the best guard and wing rotation we've had in five to ten years. We're legit six deep and People maybe don't like taking minutes away from Culver, but if you can have Rubio, Russell, Akogi, Edwards, Culver, and Beasley, I mean, that is that's nothing to shake a stick at. I mean, I, I'm, I for one, am sick and tired of watching the Kata Bates, the ops of the world, and Keelan Martin, who's a great story, and Jordan McLaughlin. You know, those guys are team players. They're two-way players for a reason. We're actually going to have a legit six NBA-type player Garden wing rotation for the first time in a long time. Wolves fans have to be excited about that. Whatever we do from there, we make trades to get a star or whatever we plan to do. I'm just excited to see competent level basketball where all of our guard rotations for the entire season. Yeah, and that's just it. And I think people get caught up in the fact of the modern NBA of shooting is everything. Like if you can't shoot, you're not an NBA caliber player. And so here's an interesting question I have for you. If so if we say, let's say shooting is the main skill set in the NBA, like say that's the skill set you want on the offensive end, like that's the most sought after ability on the offensive end. What's second? Is it like, it is it playmaking? Like that has to be second, right? Playmaking or court vision would obviously be second. Yeah, you got to be able to move the ball and make it happen. So, yeah, I guess I'm just lost on people. Like I couldn't believe the trade like when it got reported that it was Rubio and then eventually what turned into Balmaro and McDaniels, like I thought we got a steal. Like there were guys at 17 that I liked, like Precious Achua and a couple other names. But in my mind, Precious Achua is also another home run type swing. So if we can get two of those home run type swings in Balmaro and McDaniels and get Ricky Rubio, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't see much of a down, downside to it. And he's going to make us better on the floor. And people question whether or not the um, like PR move 
came into play with it at all. And I don't think it had an effect. Like, I don't think the PR, I think there was an added bonus. I don't think Rosas made this deal as a, oh, it's a PR move. We need to get Wolves fans back in the building. We need to get te- people watching this team again. Like, yes, it, it, I don't think it had a anything to do with the actual trade, but it's an added bonus. Like, people love watching Ricky Rubio. It's going to get fans in the seats whenever fans can come back. And I don't know. I don't see much downside to the trade. Fire up the I'm coming home montage, man. The last one we got was KG. Now we're getting Rubio. Just a fan favorite Wolves. I'm ready for it. Let's get it. Yeah, hopefully hopefully that's not what the Wolves are turning into, though. We suck for five years, bring back a fan favorite, and everything's good in the world. So moving into now more the entire NBA in terms of the NBA draft, let's talk about some of our favorite and least favorite picks from the night. So starting maybe with our favorite picks, who do you, I know you're going to, you're going to hit on Cole Anthony. We both love the Cole Anthony pick, but along with that, and maybe what did you like about that? And who else did you like? Who else's draft did you like last Wednesday? Uh, I really liked what Charlotte did, getting LaMelo Ball and Grant Miller, uh, just adding some shooting to that backcourt. I liked Obi Toppin's Knicks. Uh, I know they have a billion power forwards, and Tibbs lost his best friend, Taj Gibson, in the process. But <laughs> Can we talk about, like, when is Tom Thibodeau going to have a seizure or a stroke watching Obi Toppin play defense? Like, it's going to be quick. If he, I, I was going to say, what I was about to say is Obi Toppin is probably my rookie of the year favorite, but I forget that he's going to get that Tom Thibodeau hook just so he can get some more, I don't know, Julius Randle minutes in there that the Knicks fans love so much. I, I totally forgot about that. There's not even going to be Knicks fans there to yell at Tibbs about it, so maybe I need to walk back my Obi Toppin hype, but I, I truly love him as a fit. He's a scorer. You know, he's what they kind of wanted R.J. Barrett to be, you know, like an infusion of offense. Every first-round pick they've had kind of turns into a 3-and-D wannabe wing, and they don't end up scoring as much as they should with Kevin Knox and R.J. Barrett. And Obi Toppin's going to walk right into a situation where I think he can average 15 a game. I, I don't think that's going to be too outrageous for him with his skill set. Um, I also really liked Precious and Chua to the Heat. I mean, that's not surprising. The Heat always end up with somebody that everybody wants, and then they're like, oh, yeah, they're just going to turn him into a superstar. So that's great. And then uh, my last one is my, my man crush, Cash Stanley, is going to be floating his way over to Indiana, giving an infusion of athleticism. But Cole Anthony was easily my favorite, and it's mostly because Orlando has been begging for a perimeter score for years now. I, I mean, Markel Fultz's experiment is a great story. It is, you know, it's fun to see him get his minutes, but the shooting form and the outside scoring is always going to hold that team back. Orlando is a team that has plenty of long, lanky wings, big, long bigs. I mean, got Mo Bamba sitting down there at the seventh of whatever wingspan. And Cole Anthony is going to be dropped into that lineup, and he's going to be asked to do a majority of the playmaking, and I think he's more than capable. He was both a top five prospect for us. I think he was number two or three on your board. We loved his ability to take teams like North Carolina last year and make them relevant. And not that that's the same thing with the Magic, but he's going to be more than used to inputting the ball, you know, trying to create for players, knocking down shots. I mean, you look at this roster, it's going to help everybody. It's going to help Vucevic get easier looks. You know, you can move Evan Fournier. He's a, Evan Fournier can play a little bit more, you know, the three maybe. The only question I have is if they're going to fully commit to Cole Anthony. I know me and you both have concerns because, yeah, Markel Fultz is a great story, but that's not a contract you want to keep relying on. Markel's making close to $10 million a year, and we hope money isn't going to talk, and that they're going to try to keep Cole Anthony either off the ball or make those two work together. I think they. I think you really need to move on from Markel Fultz experience. You really want to give Cole Anthony a fair shot. Yeah, I love the Cole Anthony pick, too. I'm a little skeptical about the fit in Orlando just because of what you just said. The fit with Markel Fultz. Will they fully commit to Cole Anthony? And one of the big things we talked about last week with Cole Anthony and why we both kind of ranked him so high is he was just not like in a good place in North Carolina. They didn't give him the proper spacing to work and do what he does best. And he was a top-ranked high school prospect coming out. And to both of us, I guess, he didn't do anything at North Carolina where we said, 
oh yeah, it makes sense why this guy dropped down to 15 on draft night. Like, no, it just, in our eyes, he didn't fit what North Carolina was trying to do. You know, North Carolina had terrible shooters around him and Cole Anthony, like that's the number one thing he needs. He needs space to operate. He needs space to drive and kick. He needs space to create his own shot. And I think Orlando can provide that. They have a lot of good spacing options when you look at their roster. Like Fournier is obviously a good space out option. Aaron Gordon has gotten better at his three-point shot. Vucevic is a solid uh, stretch five option. And when Jonathan Isaac comes back, he can provide some of that too. But my biggest concern is the Markel Fultz experiment. And I think what's triggering a little hesitation in the back of my mind is Cole Anthony is so high on our boards where we're like, oh, yeah, obviously turn the keys over, give him control of the offense, and this is what it's going to be. But when I look around the NBA, like he fell to 15. Is that something they will do with a 15th overall pick? Now, in our eyes, yes, it is something they will do. But like taking a guy at 15 is not the same as taking a guy in the top five. Like in the top five, it's more common to see like Charlotte. I think Charlotte will hand over the keys to LaMelo Ball, let him run the show, let him go through his mistakes and kind of try to turn that franchise around. But like at 15, I don't know if Orlando will be willing to necessarily do that. And that's what concerns me because him and Markel Fultz on the court at the same time, I don't think is a great, great look. Like Cole Anthony has off ball ability on offense, but he's best with the ball in his hands. And Markel Fultz, like that's not an off ball player. Markel Fultz is his, his shots. I mean, you might have a better shot than Markel Fultz at this point. I, mean, I better have a better jumper than Markel Fultz. Are you kidding me? It's the one thing I am better than him at. <laughs> but yeah, so I love the Cole Anthony to Orlando pick, but I'm worried about the fit with Fultz and if they'll give him room to operate. So the nice, the nice thing though is that this is it might not work this year, but there's definitely a vision in place. So. Forget that they took that Chuma Okiki last year, who was definitely a draft stash based off of a catastrophic injury. But these are the players that are coming off the books next year. You're going to have, I mean, we'll probably imagine Aaron Gordon being traded at some point. Evan Fournier's contract's done after this year. Markel Fultz's contract's done after this year. I'm sure they'll probably re-sign Isaac. So it's probably good for me to look and realize, and probably good for fans of the magic that it might not come together this year, but the plan going forward, unless they recite polls, which I have no idea why they would do that at any substantial number. It looks like he maybe next year might be the year that he actually takes off most of this year. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. And I think they've gotten over their fetish with big centers that don't really provide anything. You know, they pass that on to the Detroit Pistons, but <laughs> we can talk about the Pistons and you can give your, your Pistons, you can shit on the Pistons a little bit later. I might go through the company log to see if somebody in Orlando went to Detroit and started advising them for having free agency because it is wild. Who's got the center fetish in the NBA? That's what. That's the real question based off this episode. But uh, uh, who was somebody from the draft that you liked? I know I got onto my guys. Who were some of the names that you really enjoyed? Yeah, so I really like the Aaron Neesmith to Boston. He can play off the ball. He's got great movement, and obviously he's a dead-eye shooter from deep. So when you have guys like Kemba, Jalen Brown, and uh, Jason Tatum, who all control the ball at some point in the game, it's good to get a spacer that doesn't need the ball, great off-ball movement, and that can knock down shots at the end of that lineup. I love that pick. Um, you know how to pronounce this name. I don't. Poku. Alexei Pokushevsky. Pokushevsky. There it is. I finally got it, but yeah, I really like that pick to OKC, too. Sam Presti's all of a sudden trying to you know, him and Griffin from New Orleans were trying to get into a competition of who can collect more first-round picks. And, you know, I like what the Thunder are doing with stacking up so many picks. You know, they might win maybe five games this season, but eventually they're going to have to hit on some draft picks. Like, I think you you wrote a Sam Presti article last year that went through some of his recent picks, and it just hasn't – I guess you can remind me – it just hasn't looked good for his drafting history lately. So that's what concerns me in OKC is you're getting all these first round picks and everyone's like, oh, Sam Presti, GM of the year. He's doing all these things. And I'm like, like right now they're they're just first round picks. Like you have to wait until names are attached to those picks. And maybe it turns out and that's, you know, that's the common way to rebuild a team in the modern NBA, trade all your good players away for 
picks and, you know, poor Al Horford and Shea Gildas Alexander are going to be sitting there going through some, you know, there's probably going to be like G leaguers in their, in their rotation all year long, which is not going to be fun for OKC fans, but you're right. What do you, before I get into Devin Vassell to the, to the Spurs, which was my favorite pick of the night, what do you think about OKC's process and what they've done this off season in terms of accumulating picks? I mean, obviously they're going for the home run swing. You know, they are a market. They got an unbelievable streak of luck taking Harden, Durant, and Westbrook, and then they became title contenders immediately. And I almost feel like this is the same type of recipe where they're like, all right, we need multiple bites at the apple. We're going to take lightweight speed guys. We're going to take guys with you know maximum upside. And you know, that's where I was saying with the drafts they've been done recently. I mean. What if Terrence Ferguson or Darius Baisley really brought to this team? But Presti, to his credit, has done a nice job. Like, Shea Gilders Alexander is a perfect example. Like, all right, you nailed that pick. You could build a team around him. He's going to be an all-star in the future. Awesome. Let's move forward. Now he's trying to collect two more of those guys. And if he can do it, they're going to be a good team again. You know, you got Luke Dort in the second round, which looks like an absolute steal right now. But I'm going to... I think you're disrespecting my boy Al Horford a bit, thinking that the Thunder are just going to win five games this year. Shea Gilders Alexander, who they got in the Paul George trade, and Al Horford, you, th- you think that's going to win more than, okay, five Five is maybe a little absurd, but 10 games. Are they going to go over 10 and 62 in this 72-game season? Shea Gildas Alexander and Al Horford in the Western Conference. <laughs> like, come on. Put some respect on Al Horford's name. He's a lot right now, man. All I know is that Al Horford's agent is getting super fired after getting that gigantic deal. Now he's going to be shipped off to no man's land. I'm hoping, not hoping, but hoping Al just puts his body in like a cryogenic chamber. He just forgets that this year even existed to keep playing, man. I feel bad for Al. Poor Al Horford went from... I guess he lived in Atlanta, which isn't bad, but you know, then he got to experience Boston and Philadelphia, you know, two big cities in on the East Coast, and now he's got to go sit in Oklahoma City. Now I don't feel too bad for Al Horford because he's making yeah. a lot of money to do average things on the basketball floor, but yeah, that team's not winning over ten games. <laughs> so what about the Vassell that you like so much? Yeah. So Devin Vassell was my number three player ranked on my board. So I was going to like the pick no matter where he went. But when he went to San Antonio, that was almost like, like that's the perfect fit for so many players. When I look at drafts, we haven't looked at the Spurs recently just because usually they're picking towards the end of the first round. But when I look at the draft, I look at teams like San Antonio, Denver, Miami, who have a history of developing guys and getting the best out of players. And I think Devin Vassell has so much more upside than people lead on to believe. Like a lot, a lot of people call him just a three and D guy. Now I think he's probably one of, if not the best on ball defender in the entire draft. And he's already a sharpshooter from three. So yes, he, in my opinion, he's going to come in day one and be a three and D guy. He's got great length on the defensive end and he knocks down shots from outside and Popovich, you know, people are worried about the shot put jumper. I, I, I think it's overrated. I think it was truly just him messing around on the court. I'm going to give him a break from that. And I'm going to say he's going to come in, be a 3 and D guy right away. And I think he has upside, all-star type upside, especially in San Antonio. There is no, like, you can't tell me otherwise that Greg Popovich is not going to get the best out of Devin Vassell. Like, he's going to get the best version of Devin Vassell. Like, people, wherever they had Devin Vassell ranked on their board, like they're going to get the best version of Devin Vassell. Like at three, if he totally busts, my evaluation was a bust. There's no other situation in my mind where he would be better. So I think he's going to, he has the highest floor. He has one of the highest floors out of anyone in the draft in this situation. And I look at, there was a quote, I think it was from Patrick Williams, who we played with at Florida State, but Vassell did a lot more on the ball, you know, pull up, create his own shots in his second year at Florida State. And Patrick Williams was asked about why there's never, not never, but why there hasn't been like a star come out of Florida State or a guy that averages 25 points per game at the College of Florida State. And basically what he said was Florida State plays so much to a system and they stick to trying to win the game the right way that they don't have a guy that says, 
okay, here, you go jack up 20 shots and go get your points and go the highest you can in the NBA draft. Like, that's what we saw a lot of at Georgia with Anthony Edwards, where they were like, okay, here's the ball, go jack up your shots, get as many points, look as good as you can for scouts. But Florida State really plays into a system and they try to play basketball the right way. And I think that helps prospects so much at the next level because that's what a lot of NBA teams do. You don't see it, you don't see very often in the NBA where rookies are allowed to come in and just jack up shots and do whatever they want. Like there's a system in place and now the system can be catered to that player, but there's still a system in place. So I think when I look at all of those things combined, I think Vassell has a lot higher ceiling than a lot of people are giving credit to, uh, to him for. But so like San Antonio killed the draft and then they also got Trey Jones in the second round, who's another, you know, again, we probably like him more than the average person because he's from Minnesota, but he's a great on-ball defender. And I think, you know, once again, San Antonio is going to get the best out of those guys. So in my opinion, like I couldn't move Vassell much higher because I already had him at three. But I think a lot of people, if they knew Devin Vassell was going to San Antonio, would have bumped him up a couple spots on their board. I know I would have. I, I, my concern was with the jump shot. You know, I watched that Markel Fultz video, and there was a lot of similar chatter around it, which me for sure. But now I have no concerns. I mean, if you can teach Kawhi Leonard to shoot, playing power forward at San Diego State in college, and you've seen the growth in DeJounte Murray's jumper, you know, they, they're not afraid to take guys with questionable jump shots and then, you know, tweak mechanics here there to make a good Patty Mills wasn't necessarily a great shooter. And I have all the confidence in the world of Cell is going to be a great player. And you look how their roster is set up, too, going forward. He and Derek White might be the two guys who have the keys going forward. I mean, probably going to see him with DeRozan and Aldridge moving on. Rudy Gay's contract's up after this year. Patty Mills is done after this year. They probably won't get rid of all four of those guys and go completely young with Popovich. Pop likes to have his veterans. But, you know, there's not a too far too distant future where you know, you're going to be able to see themselves create a little bit more on the ball and then play off of players like Derek White and Lonnie Walker and then see his role kind of expand to the point where he's going to have his best shot to be the best player. So, yeah, the Spurs always do right. They do the right thing, and Vassell is going to be great there. It's just going to be frustrating to watch. He goes to the one place that knows how to fix everybody's jump shot both. So, no, it's it's a great pick. Yeah, I really like it. And I guess maybe moving on from some of the favorite picks, this kind of ties into Vassell a little bit. But some of my least favorite picks, Isaac Okoro at five to the Cavs. In my opinion, you look at Cleveland, they were last in defensive rating last season. So I understand where they're going. Isaac Carl is supposed to be a good defender at the next level. But like when you're drafting, if they were drafting solely for defense, and because I don't see a lot of upside with Okoro, he was ranked, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I think it was 18th on my board. So like that value at five in my eyes is not good at all. But if you're looking at a guy to to solidify your defense, like why not take Devin Vassell at five? He's already a better three-point shooter than Okoro, and you know people think that Okoro has some upside shooting threes at the next level, but Vassell's already proved that at college. So like when I look at the Isaac Okoro pick, I just don't understand the rationale behind it. Now, maybe it's because you, know, you already have Garland and Sexton, and you think Vassell would be a little redundant at the two, or, but I think Vassell can slot over to the three. He's got to put some weight on the frame, but he's got the length to play the three. He's got the quickness to play the three, and I didn't like the Isaac Okoro pick at all. And I know, you know, another pick we didn't really like was Jalen Smith, the Suns, and maybe you'll touch on that a little bit more. But what did you think of the Isaac Okoro pick to Cleveland? Well, the problem is that, you know, I understand the rationale. It's not that they were the dead last defense. They were the worst defense in NBA history by statistics. So having a panic move, you know, from a front office to draft a defensive guy is understandable, but it's not what you want. Especially with Okoro, Okoro's strengths are that he's a great on-ball defender, you know, a one-on-one defender type guy. He's not someone who's like an Anthony Davis or even a, you know, a nice defensive big man who can make up for the woes of all the other players, a Rudy Gobert or somebody like that. He's going to be focused on his man, and when I watched him, you know, his strength wasn't outside defense. It, it really wasn't, you know, he could be caught sleeping a little bit. He's just a tenacious on-ball defender, so... 
You know, when you're watching Darius Garland and Colin Sexton get blown by left and right, going to the rim, Isaac Okoro isn't solving that issue. Teams are still going to get the shots that they want. The only difference is that Okoro might be able to, you know, make it a little harder for a defensive player. You know, Okoro is kind of like a finishing touch type player. He's your Bruce Bowen. You know, he's not a foundational piece. He's somebody that you already have a great defense. And now you can just go through a, a lockdown defender on team's best player to wear them out. That's where his value is. So I agree 100%. I don't, a Coro to the Cavs never made sense. I think people are overblowing his offensive potential. I think that's why he went so high is people could kind of see the jump shot. But the best thing he does on offense is cut. And that's a great skill to have. But, you know, asking him to expand his three-point range into basically just shooting corner threes is going to be a lot to ask for him. I, I, I really worry about that. Yeah. I mean, you kind of touched on everything. I did with Isaac Okoro there. It's his potential, in my opinion, is overblown. There was rumors that the Timberwolves might want to try to get into the you know, five to ten range to take him, and I, we would have had a moment on this podcast if that happened because <laughs> not a fan of that one either. But are there any other guys you wanted to touch on in terms of least favorite picks? I know neither of us really liked the Patrick Williams to the Bulls, based off the fact of he's going to have to play the three in Chicago, and I had right. Williams ranked. I believe it was eighth on my board. And the reason I put him eighth is I liked Patrick Williams as a player, but I think he's a four in the NBA. I think he belongs at the four, and that's where his potential is. Defensively, I think his feet and lateral quickness are too slow to play the three. And Chicago already has Laurie Markin and Wendell Carter Jr. So I don't like I'm anticipating they're slotting him in at the three right away. And that's what they're gonna roll with. So I just don't like the fit with Patrick Williams. I still think he can be a good player. But I think they're going to have to transition. You know, I really hope he plays some four in Chicago, maybe, you know, next to Wendell Carter Jr. Or if Markkanen can slide over to the five in some small ball minutes. But that's another one I didn't like. The We already mentioned a little bit the Jalen Smith to the Suns. I just didn't like the value out of that pick because you know, maybe, maybe we were wrong in understanding what Jalen Smith's range was. But no one thought it was 10. You know, everyone thought it was the 17 to 25 type range. And for Phoenix, you know, they took Cam Johnson last year, who everyone, again, thought wasn't great value. Now, that turned out fine just because of, you know, the level of 3 and D ability he gave them last season. And maybe the Jalen Smith will turn out fine for them, too. But I don't think, like, there were guys on the board that they could have went to instead that I think are better fits and going to be better players. And if Jalen Smith was their guy there was had to be teams willing to trade up for, you know, Halliburton or Vassell or players in that range where they didn't need to take him at 10. I mean, the Boston Celtics were actively trying to move up the entire draft. They only needed to put four spots down and picked up the 30th pick or the 26th pick, whatever you want to put their poles to the fire. Cause the Celtics didn't want to take three players. They want to take one. And to your point, the players up on the board, man, Devin Vassell, Tyrese Halliburton, Kira Lewis Jr., Aaron Neesmith, Cole Anthony, Alexi Pokashevsky. I don't love Sadiq Bey, but I'd rather have Sadiq Bey than Jalen Smith because not only he doesn't offer you any position flexibility. I mean, some people think he can play the power forward, but we just talked about Patrick Williams' lack of lateral quickness. I mean, Jalen Smith walks on stilts. I mean, there, it's not a very fluid movement to have him go out there to guard the power forward. And if you did any sort of landscaping on Dario Sarish, you know, you knew you were going to bring him back. There was nobody else. His market wasn't big enough where you needed to worry about losing him. And that's the only thing I could think of is they wanted to have that kind of floor-spacing five. So in your secondary unit, are you going to play Sarish and Jalen Smith together and then maybe have Jalen Smith play kind of the center defensive minutes? I don't know because Sarish's value to the team last year is he actually excelled in that role. So – it seems like you have a redundancy at a position that you took with the top 10 pick. and The value was wrong. There's way better ways for them to maneuver the board. I guess we shouldn't be surprised with Phoenix considering the call for trade and such, but I don't know. Uh, I, I just didn't like anything that they did with Smith. Yeah, I didn't either. And another guy you just brought up, Kira Lewis Jr. I loved, you know, just touching on that quick, going back to favorite picks. I loved that pick for New Orleans. I had Lewis Jr. really pretty high on my board. But in transition, his speed is it's going to be deadly next to a team that loves to run. You know, him, Lonzo, 
you know, Zion, if they can get out on the break together, that's going to be fun to watch in transition. Yeah, going from fun players to non-fun players, is there any way – I don't think I can pick on every single Detroit Pistons draft pick. Uh, I, they picked my three, like, least favorite guy. I don't even know how that's even possible. Troy Weaver has just gotten on my shit list all of a sudden. So, you take Killian Hayes, all right. He's a young – he played at boom. You know, he was able to kind of – he was given the keys right away, and he made a ton of mistakes. But Killian Hayes isn't even the pick I disagree with the most. It's Isaiah Stewart at 16. I mean, talk about wasting your value with a you know a first round pick almost at the lottery. If you're gonna pair somebody to play with Killian Hayes, right? Killian Hayes is almost exclusively in the pick and roll. Almost exclusively, it's high pick and roll. It's not even side pick and roll. Killian Hayes' problem is that he doesn't necessarily have speed to beat his man one on one and set up anything. And then, so you want to pair him with a really athletic, lanky, defensive rim-running center, and you take Isaiah Stewart, who is the exact opposite of all of that. He's a plodding, thick, short, you know, banger down low who wants to get like six to ten post-touches a game. So the plan just doesn't make any sense. It's a deep bay is fine. I don't think his shot translates to three, but the Isaiah Stewart thing, especially with whoever was on the board, I mean, Pokashevsky, Josh Green, Tyrese Maxey, Precious Achua, Deke Naji would have been a perfect fit, you know, that rim-running big man. I just, I cannot believe what they did. And then they just panicked and, like, signed eight more centers in free agency. So, and those guys actually make sense to play with Killian Hayes. So, I, the 16th pick made absolutely no sense when it happened, and I can't find any good reason for it now. Yeah, I was confused by what Detroit did, too. Again, they, you know, a big theme for them seemed to be move off some of their young guys that pass regimes or, you know, that they haven't liked in the past, which is fine. And I actually liked what they were doing initially. They were getting off some guys that they didn't think fit the mold of what they wanted to be. But then, like you said, I liked the Killian. I didn't mind the Killian Hayes pick, but then like what they did to surround it just wasn't ideal in my mind. Yeah, the backcourt he gets to share with Derek Rose, Zadier yeah. like, uh, Smith, Jean and Musa. Like, where's the shooting guard on this team? I mean, you traded away Kennard, so who's Killian Hayes creating for? Jeremy Grant corner threes? I mean, I, I, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and that's the thing is Killian Hayes, a big reason why some people are so high on him is he was given space to operate overseas, and he was allowed to, you know, mess up and kind of live with like a lot of like what Anthony Edwards did at Georgia, he was allowed to live with his mistakes and he was allowed to grow in that manner. But then when you put him, you know, with another ball dominant guard, like Derrick Rose, it's just, I don't know what Detroit's doing. You know, they got Blake Griffin, maybe, maybe Blake Griffin will save the franchise. Blake Griffin can play point forward and Troy Weaver can play off the bottle. (laughs) Transitioning over to maybe some more general free agency and bigger outlook stuff. What uh, what team or move, I guess, or like what did you learn from some of the offseason stuff just in mo- in a more general sense? Yeah, I love this time of year because we kind of get to see, especially with the shortened offseason, what the plan these teams are putting together. You know, you don't have time to, you know, get the rumors flying. I mean, we're, we're less than a month from the NBA season starting, so it's been really fun to see a plan. And the one that stuck out to me the most is Utah. And the reason is that it might seem innocuous, but I really think that Yudoka as a movie, as the 27th pick, is a big, big signal that the Rudy Gobert era in Utah is coming to an end. They haven't extended Gobert, and they drafted a guy with literally the exact same profile. You know, a seven-footer with seven-foot-seven wingspan. Not to mention, as a movie, has a 39-inch vertical at 250 pounds, which is just a godly. He's the all-time leader in field goal percentage in college history, college basketball history. And I think the best part, if you're looking at it from Utah's team building, is that A, he's going to cost $23 million less on your salary cap. And B, he doesn't demand the ball. He's not a guy who's going to want post touches and need to get his 5-10 to 10 a game like Gobert's going to want. So you look at the Utah Jazz going forward, if Rudy Gobert finishes this year on the Utah Jazz, I would absolutely be shocked. They have to know in the front office that when it comes to the playoffs, 
players like Gobert can't hang because they're not able to go onto the perimeter and be effective on those pick and roll switch situations. Rudy Gobert's value is rooted in being a rim protector. If you pull him from the rim, you see that he can get torched, not easily, but you know, against playoff level teams, he's not as effective. So taking a player like Gobert with literally like 5% of the price and being able to take that contract and, you know, Mike Conley's contract is up after this year as well at $34 million. That's $60 million the Jazz are going to be able to use going forward to get more creative point players, maybe a stretch four. And if you want to get a backup center, you can always call Detroit, I guess. But it seems like it seems like this is the end of the Rudy Gobert era just because, you know, with the way that they have the resources moving and the Azubuki pick, it's pretty clear and obvious to me. Yeah, I didn't see the Azu uh, Biki pick as much of a sign that Ro- that Gobert's time is coming to an end. I just saw it as another. Now, do I think Gobert will be back with Utah next season? It's a toss-up in my mind because you know he has been there his entire career, and you know he's you know the Donovan Mitchell situation last year with the whole coronavirus makes it a little bit more interesting, but. I think they need a different center to get where they want to go in the playoffs. I think that's been shown. Uh, they've kind of been exposed by, you know, they were exposed twice by Houston with Rudy Gobert on the floor. And that, you know, that stretch five out system kind of tears them apart when Gobert's trying to switch or, you know, even guard like a PJ Tucker outside because Gobert's, like you said, his abilities on defense come at the rim. So when he's stretched out to the corner, He's a lot less valuable defensively. But in terms of the pick uh, last Wednesday night, you know, they took Tony Bradley a couple years ago and everyone thought that was maybe a Rudy Gobert replacement down the road. So I don't necessarily see it as a replacement, but I think it is a backup option in case, you know, if this season doesn't go well and if they're another, you know, first or second round playoff exit, which with how stacked the Western Conference is, it's looking that they probably will be. I don't see them getting past, you know, getting to the conference finals. But then maybe they move on from Rudy Gobert, let him walk. I think it'd be dangerous. You know, there's two ways I see it. It would be dangerous not to trade him at the trade deadline and just let him walk. But then again, it would be dangerous trading him at the trade deadline and maybe not getting a guy that helps you in the playoffs that year. So there's kind of two ways to go about it. I think if you know you're going to let him walk, you have to trade him, get off of the contract, try to get something for him. But, yeah, it, Utah's in an interesting spot because, you know, Donovan Mitchell's such a dynamic player, but a lot of what Donovan Mitchell does on offense, and when it comes to playoff time, Gobert, I think he would fare a lot better with a stretch five and spacing out and giving him more room to operate, getting to the rim, attacking the basket, and that kind of thing. So maybe Gobert becomes redundant. And as you said, you know, getting off of that money, him and Conley, you know, I don't know what free agent's going to want to come to Utah unless they're good friends with Donovan Mitchell, but it gives them flexibility in the future to do kind of shape the roster around Mitchell more so. Yeah, you'd hope that they realize that Mitchell's the number one asset and you'd hope that they learn the lessons from their playoffs before. You know, I mean, I guess this could go the other way, too, if they end up keeping Gobert. Now you have two seven-foot guys with seven-foot-seven wingspans to keep on the floor at all times. So I'm leaning one way, but maybe they're just going all in on this style. Yeah, I think, yeah. Ideally, I think that they, you know, cater to Donovan Mitchell and get the guys around him that better suit his play style. But you never know. It's always a toss-up. In terms of other teams or what else I learned, I really like what Dallas and Philly did. Just with Philly, I've said before on this podcast how high I am on Ben Simmons, how I think he can be a top five player in the NBA. He's in the wrong sit. He was in the wrong system in Philly. You know, Al Horford and Josh Richardson and Joel. I'm not going to say Joel Embiid because I think those two can fit together, and I think Daryl Morey's trying to make that happen as much as possible before possibly trading one of those two next summer if it doesn't work this year. But when they brought in Al Horford initially, you know, I picked Philly to go to the finals last year. And I'm going to chalk it up as a Ben Simmons injury in the playoffs. So I'm not going to take full credit for, for missing on Philly, but they, they didn't cater to either of their stars strengths. They put Al Horford down there clogging up the lane for both of them. And they didn't, you know, they did have a lot of sharpshooters around them. They were relying on Shake Milton down the stretch. 
And what they did, getting Danny Green, a guy that will space the floor, great team defender, and then getting Seth Curry, one of the best shooters in NBA history. I mean, he's just a knockdown guy. He's not a liability on defense like everyone you know makes him out to be. He's not the best on-ball defender in the world, but you know it wasn't too long ago when he was on Portland and he was you know the Steph the Steph Curry assignment against Golden State. You know, again, that's his brother, so he knows what he likes to do. But he hung in with Steph Curry defensively, you know, decently in that series and chased him around. He's a good team defender. He's nothing special defensively, but Philly doesn't need defense. You have Ben Simmons to lock down wing defenders. So Josh Richardson was a little redundant, in my opinion. Getting a better, getting better outside shooters that aren't defensive liabilities is perfect. And I really like what Daryl Morey's doing in Philly. And then, you know, on the other side of that trade, Dallas, their offense was historically great last season. So I think they can sacrifice some of that shooting because Luka Doncic and Kristaps Porzingis are going to be able to create a top five offense every year on their own. Like no matter who's around them, they're going to be great offensively. So then subbing out Seth Curry and bringing in Josh Green in the draft and Josh Richardson helps them get longer and more athletic on the wing. And that's what they need to do. They were 18th in defensive rating last season. And I think that's where, you know, that was their biggest weakness last year. So when you look at Dallas getting longer defensively, you know, it wouldn't surprise me. Luka Doncic is going to be an MVP conversation probably for the rest of his career until he goes downhill when he's older. But he's at that level already where he's going to be in the MVP conversation every single year. And so offensively, they're going to be fine. So getting rid of Seth Curry, it hurts. He was a fan favorite in Dallas, one of the best shooters of all time. But they did it to get better defensively. And they're going to be one of my sneaky picks to get you know, to the conference finals. I don't know if I can say NBA finals, but Western Conference finals, I would not be shocked with what they've done this summer. And something for people to remember, too, is that they were missing players. You know, They were one of the must-watch teams of the bubble because they were just firing on all cylinders. But they were without Dwight Powell, who was a very integral part of that offense, which was already historically great. And he's a nice defensive player. Dwight Powell runs the pick and roll with Luka. That's his most comfortable player to do it with. I mean, that's your rim runner. That's your guy who's going to throw down a nasty dunk after Luka right, runs the top of the key. Plus, Willie Cauley-Stein, who they acquired basically just for the playoffs, is going to be back this year. He opted out last year. So, you know, you can move Maxi Kaliba back to his power forward position instead of having him play kind of a small ball center where he kind of got annihilated by, you know, the centers in that series against the Clippers. So, you know, the pieces are locking into place. Plus, you have Porzingis. I mean, this team is going to be locked and loaded once they get all their guys back. It hurts to lose a Seth Curry, but, I mean, when you have Luka, you're going to be a top-five offense, and that's as simple as that. So, focusing on getting their defense set is probably the best decision they've made. So, I 100% agree with you on Dallas this year. They are going to be a sneaky team to watch. Yeah. Is there any other – I mean, in my opinion – and. It's redundant, but Rick Carlisle is one of the best coaches in the NBA, too. So he's going to get the best out of that group, kind of like San Antonio. That's just another team that you always know is going to be in the picture, no matter the guys they have. He just runs, you know, he gets the best out of guys, and he runs the schemes and system that fit his team best. But is there any other team that you really like what they did or maybe not like what they did? I know I really like what Portland did, getting some more wing defenders, Derek Jones Jr., I believe went over there and Robert Covington, you know, they gave up a lot to get Rocco, but that's going to be, you know, they were kind of lacking wing defenders in the past and had trouble shutting down the LeBron James and Kawhi Leonard's of the world. But now you get two really athletic, long wing defenders to fit in with that group. You brought Carmelo Anthony back, Dame Lillard's playing at a career level. I mean, that's another really interesting team. You know, more of the story, the West is stacked. Yeah, it's, it's loaded this year. The Wolves are going to have a tough go of trying to just make it into the playoffs, man. I mean, you're looking at the Western Conference right now. Are the Timberwolves better than, you know, the Thunder? And that's probably it. I know we, we haven't really seen it, but think about how many teams are probably going to be locks when you look at it. I mean, both L.A. teams are loaded and ready to come back. We both love Dallas. Denver's there. They're probably a lock. Utah, Portland, I mean, and that's not even counting Golden State. I'm probably six teams deep that I think absolutely make the playoffs regardless, you know, Dallas would if Luka got hurt. But, you know, you got six locks, in my opinion, for that Western Conference. And I think 
if James Harden stays in Houston, even though it might be uncomfortable, that might be a seventh one. James Harden isn't going to miss the playoffs if he's on the floor. So Western Conference is just wild this year. What do you, what do you kind of think about that? Do the Wolves really, I mean, I maybe pivot to the Wolves, but I just mean I, I don't see a big pathway here. Yeah, I'm higher on the Wolves than a lot of people. I think they have a lot of right pieces in place. I don't think they'll end up being a top seven team in the West because, like you said, I have the Lakers, Clippers, Nuggets, Rockets, Jazz, Mavericks, and Blazers all as locks, as top seven teams. And I don't think there's much – like, things can go wrong injury-wise, but there's not a lot of, like, room for those teams to miss the playoffs. Like there's going to be four really good teams that get eliminated in the first round of the playoffs that could easily, you know, be conference final teams other years. And then, like, after that, Golden State's going to be really good with Curry back and some of the other pieces they have. If Phoenix should be pretty good with Chris Paul and Devin Booker. You know, that's an eight and then a nine. <laughs> New Orleans is going to be good with, you know, Zion another year and their young core developing. Now, they did get rid of Drew Holiday. But the West is just loaded. Like, OKC is the one team. Like, I think we can all agree, you know, they're going to be 15th in the West. That shouldn't be a question. If they're not last in the West, either something went really, really right for uh, Pokashevsky and he's the next Kevin Durant, or, you know, something went really, really wrong for another team. But if I had to say right now, I think the Timberwolves will be good enough to be a 9 or 10 seed, making kind of a little playing tournament. I think, they're, I think Memphis is going to take a step back. I think we can be better than Memphis. I think we'll be better in Sacramento. I think we'll be better than New Orleans, even with their young core. And San Antonio is a tricky one just because Popovich is going to get the best out of that group. They have a lot of young pieces. But theoretically, I, I think we'll be in the mix with the Spurs, Suns, and Warriors in that 8-10 to 10 range. I think we'll be in that conversation. And then with the you know, Grizzlies, I think the Grizzlies, Kings, Pelicans, and Warriors will all – on the outside looking in when it's all said and done. So how is uh, Adam Silver going to find a way to get New Orleans into the playoffs this year, though? I mean, it yeah. seems like the big 11 or 12 team tournament just so we can see some more Zion on national television or what? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I like what New Orleans has done. Stephen Adams is a little questioning to me because yeah. when you look at, like, you want floor spacing for Lonzo and Zion to drive down into the paint, like Steven Adams isn't an outside shooter. Now he does give them another, you know, big body, big threat type of guy down low. But I thought that was a little redundant in my opinion. I didn't, I don't see a great fit like with Zion and Steven Adams on the court. I don't really like that fit a ton. Now it, it allows Zion to maybe not guard some of the bigger centers and get into foul trouble because Steven Adams can do that. You know, a lot of players, especially Carmichael Towns, always talks about how he hates playing against Stephen Adams because he's, you know, the, the dude doesn't move defensively. He, he posts or he guards you on the block, and you aren't moving that guy. You are where you are. You better get early positioning because otherwise you're you're toast. But what did you think of the Stephen Adams to New Orleans move? You know, it's curious. I'm curious if they do play on the floor together. If they kind of almost want to give Zion more ball handling responsibilities. You know, you look at the team there. And, you know, you have some ball-dominant guys. Lonzo Ball obviously likes to have it in his hands. But outside of Lonzo, I mean, you have Ingram. I mean, Eric Bledsoe is there now. I guess maybe New Orleans really wanted to get better on the defensive side of the floor. You're bringing in an Adams and a Bledsoe. But I'm curious to see the next evolution of Zion Williamson's game. And I know that in transition, they actually really love him having the ball in his hands because he is very explosive for his size. And he actually has decent vision. So this is going to be a run-and-gun team. So maybe we bring Steven Adams in to kind of be a defensive anchor. And, you know, the nice part for Adams is we talked about, you know, contracts and everything that don't value. This year's going to hurt with a $27 million hit, but – the next two seasons after that are down to 17. So you're, you're, you're shaving $10 million a year off of this contract after this season. So not my favorite fit, but, you know, New Orleans might be going with strategies. You can't have enough good veteran players, which can show up in the NBA. Yeah, and there's a lot of those teams where, you know, it's just going to be – the NBA is going to be very interesting this year. There's a lot of teams that, you know, it could just explode and, you know, go the right way or it could blow up in their face. Like, I think, you know, New Orleans is an interesting team to watch. Phoenix is an interesting team to watch to see how the CP3 and Booker pairing 
work. I think the Timberwolves are interesting to watch to see how the D'Lo and Cat thing works. You know, Milwaukee's going to be interesting to watch. Giannis still hasn't signed that Supermax contract. So how do him and Drew Holiday work out? There's just a lot of teams. It's going to be an interesting season in the NBA, I think. And with the 2021 free agent class looking like it is, I think it's going to be a very important season. And, you know, with everything that's going on in the world, hopefully they figure out a way to safely complete the entire 72-game schedule and the playoffs. But um, is there any other teams that you wanted to touch on before before we wrap up? Uh, the only one that I was interested in, which is pretty obvious, is the Thunder. You know, Sam Presti's accumulating every single pick that he can. But they really are posturing for that 2021 draft, which, you know, Wolves fans will groan to hear because we traded our pick with Wiggins to the Warriors. But the 2021 draft is supposed to be absolutely loaded. And when you take a guy like Pokashevsky, it's not somebody that's a win-now player. So, you know, they're going to get the best of both worlds. They'll have a tough 2020 season. But I kind of view what Presti is doing as kind of a hyperdrive version of the process that we saw in the 76ers where – you have some players that you can build around. It's not a complete teardown. And with a bunch of picks they have coming up, within the next two years, we could really see a lot of, you know, fruits to this for them. Because next year's draft, they're going to have a ton of ammo in. And, you know, they snag one of the top players, you know, Cade Cunningham or somebody like that. They are going to be business. So I really like what they've done. And I think it's interesting that they really have just fallen in on the 2021 draft. Yeah, there's, there's just so many different storylines that we can keep touching on as we go throughout the season, but it's going to be an interesting season. It was an interesting off season already. And I think next, you know, next off season has the potential to be even more, even more hectic. But uh, anyway, thank you for listening to episode five of the bubble boys. Make sure to follow pro city hoops on Instagram and Twitter at pro city hoops. We'll see you sometime again. You know, the NBA season training camps open up in about four days. So we're ready to roll here. Peace.